What's going on guys, it's your man with the plan, Samuel Plan, coming back at you once again with a brand new instalment, the first instalment of Sports Entertainment is Dead, right here on Lords of Pain Radio. Alright, welcome to the show guys, as ever, thank you for tuning in, thank you to everyone who tuned in last week as well for my two hour special with Chad the Doc Matthews as we debated our differing opinions on how best to receive professional wrestling as a fan uh, two hour special I was really happy with the way that show turned out so again if you didn't catch it you can do so on demand on blog talk radio or through lordsofpain.net and indeed catch all the great shows here on Lords of Pain Radio in that exact same way those of you who've been paying attention to the show over the last uh, month or so, those of you who have been uh, following me on social media or reading my columns will know exactly what today's podcast is all about. We're here for another two-hour special. I'm on my own this week, but I'll be with you for the next, well, let's say two hours to 90 minutes. Not not entirely certain how long we're going to go, but we'll see, we'll see how we manage here. Uh, and, of course, this week it's all about my picks for matches of the year in 2018. I say matches because, again, for those who have uh, been following, you'll already know this, but for those of you who don't, I separate my discussion of match of the year into different categories. Ultimately, different matches on different positions of the card and different match types, match styles, different performers. Uh, The context of what we expect from them can often differ wildly. So I'm not a big believer in creating a single linear list because I think that it doesn't necessarily account for the differences in context. You can... It's a struggle sometimes uh, to to really believe in a comparison between two different matches of completely different styles on completely different positions of the card or completely different types of show. So I separate it into five categories. Traditionally, we have network match of the year, TV match of the year, tag team match of the year, undercard match of the year and main event match of the year and I'll explain the sort of the definitions of of what I consider eligible in each of those categories as we go through the show here but also this year I've introduced a sixth category that I haven't done in in previous years and the reason I've done this I came into uh, a a little cynicism uh, in past years when I was considered to be a little friendly towards Seth Rollins, my favourite wrestler, of course. Uh, I stand by everything I, I wrote at the time in the 2016 and 2017 versions of this pod, column versions of this podcast. Uh, I still think he had some of the best matches of both of those years. Uh, but in an attempt to try and uh, assuage some of that, in an attempt to try and prove that, uh, not that I necessarily feel like it's important to, but, but uh, to, to show you guys that I'm not above... Uh, you know, recognizing the incredible ring work across the entire roster, I decided to consider all of Seth's matches separately this year to just talk about my favorite matches and my favorite wrestler in a special recognition category. Uh, so bear that in mind as we go through the traditional five categories, all of Seth Rollins' matches were sort of automatically discounted because I'm giving them separate praise in this special recognition category. So we've got a lot to get through today. The way this is going to work is I've split each of the categories uh, apart and uh, created a short list of three matches for each of those, which I announced in my column last Sunday. So uh, if you don't know what they are, they'll come as a bit of a surprise, but those who read my columns will will already know 
what those shortlists are going to be. Those who follow me on social media, I guess my posts last night on New Year's Eve, accounting for my favourite matches of the year, will be a bit of a spoiler, but uh, hopefully not many of you will have seen it. Uh, and so we best get cracking, really. And I, and I think the best place to start is with the special recognition category. Let's get Seth Rollins out of the way. Let me have my moment to gush here uh, and and we'll get that out of the way and then crack on with the rest of the show. So I think it's, you know, he's had an incredible year. I was quite surprised actually when I came across some cynical uh, responses to my naming him Wrestler of the Year. I know it's kind of an obvious pick for me, uh, but it's not like it's unwarranted. I mean, it's not like it's a stretch of an argument, right, to say that he's had one of the best years in the company. And the reason why he's had one of the best years in the company, pure and simple, is because of the relentless quality of his work in the ring between the ropes. I mean, just, uh, you know, whether you consider them classics, quote, quote, or not, I think we can get a little bit too bogged down in the pedantry of defining what that word means. You know, he's been pumping out great match after great match after great match on TV, on pay-per-view, uh, against everyone from Jinder Mahal all the way through to, you know, uh, Kevin Owens, all the way through to Dolph Ziggler and The Miz and, and on and on. So... Uh, you know, wanted to consider all of that before I, I announce, really get into detail about the shortlist here. Some honourable mentions. I loved the four-way ladder match at Greatest Royal Rumble. I think a lot of people have forgotten how great that was. It was very naturalistic in its style. Uh, even though it could have gone down the route of being more of a, a stunt brawl type ladder match, as my friend Doc calls them, or a ladders match as I call them, that focuses on multiplicity. It was still very psychologically driven with a very innovative conclusion that we haven't seen in the genre before. So really loved that one. Also, uh, you know, I, I actually had shortlisted here the Ziggler match at SummerSlam. I've since changed my mind since my column on Sunday, but wanted to give that match a shout-out. And, uh, of course, all the matches in the Ziggler series uh, a shout-out. They were all incredible. He had three great matches with Finn Balor on TV at the beginning of the year, one on New Year's Day in particular. I, I love because it was the match in which he reclaimed his curb stomp. So we've got a, you know, a, a number of, of honourable mentions there. I mean, I, I really enjoyed the, the six-man at Super Showdown. I know a lot, a lot of people didn't, but I thought the ending really recontextualized everything up to that point. The finish of that match was a thing of beauty. Uh, and I, I have a, a great appreciation for the TLC match with Dean Ambrose as well, which again is perhaps a bit divisive, but uh, I thought that was masterful too. But none of those made the shortlist. I'll go through the shortlist one by one and I'll finish with the match that I've picked as my favourite Seth Rollins match of the year. And I guess I'll start with the replacement that wasn't in the shortlist I announced on Sunday. This is a match that I've replaced the, the Ziggler SummerSlam match with. And it's his second Intercontinental title defence against Kevin Owens on the August 27th episode of Monday Night Raw. And the reason why I kind of uh, changed my mind on this, I, I guess if you were to level a criticism at any of the Ziggler matches, it would be that they perhaps... They have a tendency to maybe blend in with one another. They were all awesome, but it's difficult to separate them out in your memory. And by contrast with this Kevin Owens match, you have a match that doesn't just stand apart from that Ziggler series, but stands apart from Rollins' entire library. Because, you know, people... Again, I, I saw it criticised at TLC that Rollins started to sell the knee again. The reason that works and the reason he does that is because it plays on his character continuity. We used to see it all the time with Angle and his neck, for example. So it's a sensible storytelling thing to do, but what makes this Owens match stand apart is the fact that instead it's the shoulder that gets targeted. So immediately you have a visual difference. But also what I really love about it is that there's this really subtle but really great character subtext to it because you have 
two characters on polar or polar who are polar opposites mentally heading into this match and that really plays into how the action unfolds because on the one hand you have Owens who comes out and uh, responds to Rollins open challenge with this kind of bitter angry promo uh, he's a character at rock bottom he's had a miserable summer and he's looking to recoup that uh, and on the opposite end you have Seth Rollins a challenger who is on cloud nine he's back with his brothers at full full strength again he's got his intercontinental championship back he's on career form so you have a champion on cloud nine and a challenger at rock bottom and that automatically means you've got one guy with everything to lose and one guy with nothing to lose and the way that that then translated into Owen's growing desperation I mean first of all there's something quite ugly about Owen's performance in that match it's it's tip, it's as typical of him as we've ever seen you know he's talking trash and he's he's kind of sticky to his usual moves but the tone, it just takes on a, a slightly uglier sense because of that bitter and angry promo and that sense of desperation. Um, and and that just, it, it kind of, it puts a, a, an extra little spice into everything that Owens does when he targets the shoulder, every right hand, every sort of screaming enunciation. Um, it, it's all imbued with a particular viciousness because of that contextualizing promo before the match that really does add a lot um, and that is as responsible, the attitude that, that aggression is as responsible for as many clever preemptive counters from Owens uh, as it really is sort of zealous errors that he commits uh, and that, you know, that's really I think what separates uh, separates the two performances here, what makes Rollins able to get that victory is that, uh, you know, the deeper the match goes, the more desperate Owens gets to the point where he becomes quite aimless. He doesn't seem to know what to do next. He doesn't seem to know what to go for next, despite the fact he's been working a solid game plan with Rollins' shoulder. Uh, and by contrast, Rollins remains his ever-focused self, constant forward motion, just absolutely relentless. Um, you know, in terms of the action, it's it's perhaps not got as, as many memorable moments as some of Rollins' other matches, like the finish to the ladder match or the inverted Falcon Arrow superplex combo in the Ziggler match uh, and some of the... the um, uh, Finish finisher counters in the Miz Backlash match, so it maybe lacks on that front. But generally speaking, I think tonally it's uh, and visually it's not only standing apart from the rest of Rollins' work this year, but it's it's really quite robust. Uh, but it's not my my favourite Rollins match of the year. The second contender, and I really came close to picking this one actually for this category this year. The second contender was the tag, Monday Night Raw tag team title match from Hell in a Cell between Seth Rollins and Dean Ambrose, Dolph Ziggler and uh, Drew McIntyre, the, the incumbent champions. Um, and, you know, I mean, if, if this was eligible in the tag team match of the year category... I would be. I would find it very difficult not to call it the best tag team match of the year. I mean, when you go back and rewatch it, people might not remember it as that, but when you go back and rewatch it, it is a stunning powerhouse of a match. The way that it just builds and builds and builds and builds and builds to the point where you get this really crazy sense of urgency and 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 disciplined chaos that was the Shield's watermark for so long in the conclusion of the match. Like, the last five minutes of this thing are absolutely exceptional and push it beyond the quality, the outstanding quality of the matches Ambrose and Rollins had with the bar in 2017. Um, that old-school build, I know, uh, I remember on Aftershock, Steve, my co-host on Aftershock, felt like it was a bit of a slow match to begin with, but it's really that old-school build towards a frenetic conclusion. That It may be an unfashionable style, but that's what makes that frenetic conclusion so effective. You know, you don't get the pandemonium and the hysteria of the final half 
if you don't have the steady and gradual build of the first half. So that shouldn't really be looked past. Uh, and the fact that it, it really kind of gives you a clear sense of character and, and the roles that each of these participants play in their individual teams, the way that the characters all interact with one another in the ring, like when Drew wants to fight Ambrose and Rollins gets flattened by McIntyre. Little little moments like that help give a real clear sense of, of the roles of these different characters. Uh, I've already mentioned the finish, but it's worth emphasizing that the precision of its execution uh, is is uh, you know reflective of the talents and the skill sets of the four men involved. I've not been a massive McIntyre fan. I'm still not, but I don't by any means deny the man's natural talents as an athlete. And and this was exactly the kind of platform match that allowed him to demonstrate that. And the fact that he hits that Claymore kick, you know, while uh, I think I, I, it might, I, I can never remember whether it's Rollins or Ziggler that has uh, Rollins or Ambrose that has Ziggler up. I think it's Rollins. And McIntyre hits that Claymore kick. Uh, you know, the timing had to be perfect for that spot to work because if they were a fraction of a second out, it would have looked very awkward. And the fact that they nail it, I mean, that's that's pretty impressive. And when you combine that with the fierce originality of that finish uh, and the way that it, you know, equally beneficial composition is, is what I wrote in my notes in the sense that it makes everyone look good. No one looks bad uh, coming out of that conclusion because it's sudden, it's urgent, and it's the team that gets that three seconds on the canvas that matters most. You know, there's nothing particularly decisive about the way that McIntyre and Ziggler win, and nothing derisive either, incidentally, about the challenges. Um, the, the, again, the subtext here, though, <clears throat> much like the Owens match, is what is what really makes it transcendent for me. Um, and there's two spheres to that. The first is that you have, uh, you know, a, a, a symmetry, uh, or maybe symmetry is the wrong word, but you could compare it to the story that, the, that Ambrose and Rollins told with the bar, the matches with the bar, they were riding this wave of momentum about just loving being back together again and being a combination again and being brothers again and, and riding the momentum that gave them through to these incredible efforts against this incredible team to win Tag Team Championship Gold. So it was a very personable story, real personal stakes embroiled in in the championship chase. Whereas compared to this, this, this chase, chasing Ziggler and McIntyre, feels a lot more tactical. It's about just wanting to take those championships. So the the avaricious motivation of the Shield this time around perhaps is what denies them the ability to get that win in the way that they constantly got against the bar in 2017, especially because they're competing against the embedded resentment of the champions, which for the champions is a very personable motivation. So it's interesting how the championship aspiration and the personal motivation has switched. So last year, the Shield had the, you know, Ambrose and Rollins had the personal motivation. This year, it's their opponents. Um, and the second sphere is that, the you know, the, it, a tag team title match here that feels like it's genuinely high stakes because it's kind of linked in with what's going on with, uh, you know, with Reigns and Braun Strowman and the Universal Championship and that entire scene as well. If the Shield walk away with the tag titles, they own all the men's gold on Monday Night Raw, uh, and that's a pretty big deal. That gives them complete control over the show. So regardless of what side you're on, it feels like a very high stakes situation that has genuine consequence, not just for the tag titles, but for the whole scene on Monday Night Raw and see the tag titles. In that important position is fantastic, but ultimately, when I went back and rewatched each of the three matches on my shortlist, uh, there was only one winner in the end, and it was perhaps the predictable choice of Seth Rollins 
Intercontinental Championship title defence against The Miz at Backlash. There's a reason why this was considered an instant classic, and I think when you go back and rewatch it, it stands up to scrutiny uh, a great deal. Uh, first of all, it's a fantastic instance of uh, sequel wrestling in the sense that both of them demonstrate a growing sense of familiarity. Not just, oh, oh I beg your pardon, I'm looking at my wrong notes there. Um, it is a great sequel match, incidentally, but it's because the reason I wrote that down for this match is because it, it, it marries up character arcs beautifully, particularly uh, for The Miz. Um, first of all, they both perform like they've got this sense of uber motivation. Um, and uh, both as performers, but more importantly, as characters. Rollins has this perpetual sense of motion throughout the match uh, that that plays to what he says afterwards. I, uh, in a promo, he claimed, if you fight like a champion, you win like a champion. Uh, and, and that's exactly how his performance watches. Performance watches. Uh, by contrast, The Miz is equally motivated. There's a wonderful little moment when he's on the outside of the ring. It's just before Rollins knees the ring post, where you almost hear he's panting and you hear him saying, come on, come on. Because... Throughout the match, he's playing keep-up with, with Rollins. Rollins is presented here as a dominant, fiercely capable champion. Uh, and The Miz, his performance has a sense of indignance about it because you get a sense of a guy who's trying to prove that he's as good as Rollins is and people shouldn't look past him. Uh, and that really wraps his intercontinental title arc up beautifully because that's what the arc was all about, was him proving himself as a performer. Uh, and... You know, you hear him yelling at Rollins, I made the title relevant, and, and that sort of thing. So it, thematically, it plays into Miz's arc over a number of years here uh, and, and wraps that story up really well. Uh, because ultimately, the the story that they tell is that as good as the Miz is, here he's just outclassed by Rollins, who's performing on another level. Um, but it's not without a fight. And one of the most amazing things about the match here is that it transforms the story halfway through when Rollins suddenly hits the, the ring post with his knee instead of being able to nail... Um, the revelation neon Miz on the on the ring apron, and it's such a sudden moment uh, and uh, such a realistic moment that it really does feel like, oh, you know, crap, what's he gotten himself into now? Um, totally transforms the story entirely, imbues it with such a, a, an incredible sense of urgency. Uh, and I would, I would, when you go, if you go back and rewatch it, watch the crowd when they get to the figure four spot. You know, you get fans in the front rows waving their arms for Seth to be able to reverse it. And when he does reverse it, they're chanting tap, 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 tap. They are so invested in this match by that point emotionally that it's 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 a remarkable moment. It's an emotional rush and the visual of it to watch the crowd at that moment as well as the two performers. It's just a, a, an incredible moment. Um, and indeed, the the crowd play a great deal in, in, in why this match is so good. You know, the, the match benefits greatly from a partisan crowd that adheres to traditional moral lines, you know, there's no there's no desire to uh, to be a fan against the grain here. They're cheering for the hero in Rollins. They're booing the bad guy in the Miz, and that means that everything that the Miz does feels despicable. Everything that Rollins does feels heroic, and you get a real old school tone to the match as a result. I mean, it is pure pro wrestling in that sense completely void of any of the kind of mitigating circumstances that we get in this day and age uh, as wrestling fans as people sort of pile on different issues onto matches and kind of uh, prove unable to separate the real world context from the fiction being spun that ma this match at backlash suffers from none of that and it's so refreshing for that when you go back and rewatch it Rollins' performance, I think, in particular, uh, deserves credit here uh, because uh, it, you know, it's 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 key to understanding why he's had such a great year. I always compare him to Randy Savage rather than Shawn Michaels, and I think this match 
should make clear why that is. It has the kind of perpetual motion of Randy Savage's match with Jake Roberts at this Tuesday in Texas from 1991, as well as the same sense of explosive emotional investment. Though incredibly missing, Rollins craft that out of the match itself rather than out of the storyline going into it. Uh, and Rollins captures a ceaseless sense of macho madness in his performance in this match. You know, I mean, he really does not stop moving. I remember Maverick telling me at the time that he felt it was like he was a shark that had to keep moving or he'd die. And that line really stuck with me. But there's a definite sense that he's been infused with macho madness in this match, particularly when he's doing the suicide dives on the outside, particularly when he's rising up from the ashes to reverse the figure four. There's even You even get a sense of the visuals of his expression uh, often seem to somehow channel macho man. It's it's a very kind of uh, classic performance in, in that sense. And as I said, Miz you know, deserves credit himself, but the story here is as good as Miz is and as game as he is when he turns up, he's ultimately just outclassed by a champion who's operating on a whole other sphere um and to cap it all off i mean the way that the two of them kind of maneuver around the ring and and the, around the geography of the ring space is so naturalistic there's no kind of leading anybody anywhere you know that every space that they end up occupying is as a result of the impact of the action and the story that they're telling so generally speaking i just find it an absolutely remarkable match i don't know what if you were going to criticize it for anything i genuinely don't don't know what it would be um you know it's got the classic setup it's got the character infusion it's got the the incredible action the fluidity the the botchless execution of everything i mean some of the some of the small moments like rollins countering uh there's a moment where he he uh goes to counter um, the skull crushing finale, uh, and and uh, he sort of there's a moment where he ends up sort of hopping on one leg, and it's just enough for the Miz to be able to nail his his finish. Uh, just little moments like that that make it feel so realistic. It's a genuine all time classic. I think it's certainly one of the best matches of the year. Not my fav- overall favorite match of the year. People may be shocked to hear, but definitely I think going to take away match of the year honours for the special recognition Seth Rollins category uh, in my end of year awards this year. So that's, I mean, we've got Seth Rollins out of the way. Now I'm going to be going at a pace through this show, guys, so do try to keep up with me uh, because we've got a lot to get through and we've only got about two hours to get through it. So we're going to move swiftly on, bearing in mind that Seth Rollins versus The Miz for the Intercontinental title at Backlash, my favourite Seth Rollins match uh, of 2018. So let's deal with TV match of the year, which I kind of gave, gave a little bit of the game away on one of my picks here. And as I start talking, I'm still not really sure which of these three matches I'm going to give the honours to. I guess the, I, I, let's start with a match that I'm leaning towards putting in third place in the moment. And really these three are all very interchangeable. Um, but the th- the third match on the shortlist was the second AJ Styles Daniel Bryan match from SmackDown Live for the WWE Championship, which is of course the match where Daniel Bryan turned heel at the end by low blowing AJ Styles at an opportunistic moment. Now, first of all, rather embarrassingly, I did start reading from these points um, <clears throat> when I uh, when I was dealing with the Seth Rollins Miz match. Uh, so I guess I'll start with the point that I was making then, which is first of all, it's a great example of of sequel wrestling. The two demonstrate a clear sense of growing familiarity with one another, not just in the way that they're countering each other's familiar moves, 
which is as down to their instinctual, uh, their in-ring instincts as anything else, but also to the way that they are following up game plans and following up set pieces in a way that they didn't the first time around. So there's it's subtle, but there's a real sense of familiarity there um, and, and, and a learning curve from their first match, um, as well as in the repositioning of plays that weren't successful the first time too. It's an interesting flipped image because with the first match that they wrestled, because in the first match that they wrestled, Styles really commanded a great deal of the portion of the action by focusing on Brian's leg, and they flip that around this time because Brian does uh, controls much more of the action in this in in the second match uh, with uh, the the arm controlling Styles' arm a lot more. Uh, and so the two bounce off one another nicely. If you were to if you were to watch them as I did during my research back to back, you could you could almost see it. You can't help but think that there's a deliberate deliberate symmetry there, especially the way that the second match ended. Uh, so and, and and for the record as well, I mean that kind of traditional psychology focus on the body part. It's seen Triple H come unstuck a lot because he has an obsession with it, but. It's difficult to go wrong with that. There's a reason why people go to that well soften and it works, and it works brilliantly in this match as well. Um, there's the same instinctive stalemate in the second match as you get in the first one, um, in the way that the two of them, um, you know, they're, they're portrayed as being on an equal footing. Um, I think it's in the second match where they have a moment where they sort of both basically just run into each other because they have the same idea. But you've got counters to counters. You've got them being uh, able to... Uh, I mentioned this on my TLC uh, my TLC performance art review. There's this wonderful sense carried into their TLC match of them having to fight their own instincts because they're aware the other guy is as capable as they are in the ring. You know, that's... The two are... They're not even mirror images of each other as characters, but they're presented as as basically being the same thing, essentially. It's like when you're playing a video game, you pick the same wrestler twice to, to face each other. It's like that. Uh, and so you get this wonderful sense that they're, they're following their instincts, but they're having to sort of fight it at the same time and come up with with original plays to try and get the better of the other the other guy. But what it, what it I guess what it has over the first match is that the pace is a little swifter. The urgency is a little clearer than, than the first one. And that may be because as a result of Brian controlling the action and being aware of how dangerous Styles is because ultimately Styles had him tap out clean in the first match. Um, the sad irony of the turn is at the end of the match, the low blow and, and the irony behind that and the tragedy in that irony is perhaps the match's greatest element here because it's emphasized by the fact that this isn't a partisan crowd that supports AJ Styles over Brian like it was in the first match and I'll get back to that in a second um but but actually they're, they're audibly split in their support uh and so the fact that you know what feeds into Brian's motivation to do what he does which again I'll come back into a second when I talk about their first match with each other you know that's not present and, and accounted for here so it feels even more needless so there's a real sense of tragedy behind that turn unfortunately I do feel like the 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 kind of the the facial expressions the execution of of what Brian does after the turn is a little corny and a little over the top and a little hammy and the facial expressions almost become unintentionally comical uh, because it's not necessarily Brian's strongest suit as a performer, and I think that kind of it puts a bit of a dampener on the whole thing for me after the fact. You know, Ambrose is particularly good at being able to portray these these convincing changes in in mentality. Brian just kind of comes off as kind of a bit stock and a bit 
like I said, a bit hammy and a bit forced. So that kind of puts a bit of a dampener on it for me, and I guess is why I've placed it third on the shortlist here. Um, you know, the the gurning is is a little much for me. Okay, I think. Yeah, I think I think the Styles, the first Styles Brian match is going to be next. I think I know where I'm going to go with the final pick here, but. Um, we're talking about TV match of the year, and if you want to just talk about the, the match itself, it's hard to find anything better than the, the Brian Styles match, the first one that happened the Sunday before uh, Crown Jewel. Uh, sorry, the Tuesday before Crown Jewel, I beg your pardon. Um, first of all, there's a certain sense of fatalism about the atmosphere. This is the first WWE title defense we're told on SmackDown Live since AJ Styles beat Jinder Mahal slightly just before Survivor Series the preceding year. So that immediately creates you know, an interesting kind of little bit of, of uh, fatalistic uh, atmosphere to the match itself. You know, is history going to strike twice? Is AJ Styles going to come unstuck the way that he brought Jinder Mahal to be unstuck this time last year? Will there be a certain poetic irony uh, to Styles defending, being goaded essentially into defending his title? You know, is has his kind of cocksure confidence got the best of him here? Um and, you know, it's worth saying as well that this is for Daniel Bryan's first title shot since 2014 too, which just adds further to that. Um, first of all, I'd say that the, the, the thing that strikes most about the quality of the match itself is the vicious competitive tone of it. I mean, both of them are relentless in the ring, but more importantly, they're merciless in their competition as well. There's no hesitation. Things are brutally and unapologetically physical. Uh, they're, they're almost animalistic in how competitive they get. It's really in your face. They have these deep offensive arsenals each that they can call upon to try and outmaneuver the other one. You get a real kind of broiling anxiety and broiling tension to the tone of this thing um, that you don't often see, particularly in, in matches featuring these two men. You don't often see that, that kind of tone to it. So can sometimes be a bit clinical for both of them so to see that really kind of catapults it above I think the best of the rest of both men's work um, it plays as well into the mirror images well I said that they're not really mirror images it's like the same wrestler twice with these two um, that's what ma- that's that's what informs this entire narrative arc between these two characters which sadly is still ongoing but um, you have a, a, a pro styles crowd here which is what I was talking about in the in the second match a moment ago that is unapologetically pro-Styles, hostile towards Daniel Bryan, to the point where they're outright booing him at times, which is not a situation Bryan will be used to, uh, especially given that this is his first title shot since 2014. So you're going to think that there's a lot of kind of baggage that he's carrying around with that experience with the authority from four years ago, um, where he was the, the, the hero of the people that are now booing him. Uh, and the, the way the match plays out through that tone and through the fact that you have this similarity between the two, it's less of a chess match and it's more of a tug of war, you know, and and it's a very grimy and muddy tug of war as well, and a, and a ferocious one, um, and all of this makes this feel like a watershed moment and a watershed match for Brian's character more so than the second one. The second one may be when he physically turned heel, but I dare say this first one is probably where he mentally turned heel. As I said, a lot of emotional baggage from 2014 here. His first title match since that point. Um, he's come back from a from an injury in miraculous fashion. The biggest match of his comeback so far. You know, um, he's at a dis- physical disadvantage, so he's in that underdog situation that he was in at his, at his emotional heights with the fan base. 
Uh, he's got this injured leg. He's against a guy as capable as he is in the ring. Um, you know, his injured leg comes as a risk, comes as a side effect of his own risky offense when he goes to do the suicide dive, which is exactly the kind of risky offense that forced him into a fake retirement for two years in the first place. Um, and ultimately, you know, in front of this crowd that is booing him, with his body breaking down on him, as a result of his own ring game, he taps out to AJ Styles, the guy who replaced him in the affection of the fans. Um, and that obviously has great consequence for his character as we go to see in the rematch uh, a number of weeks uh, a number of weeks later. The similarities between the performers as well, on top of all of that context, means, like I said, a watershed moment for Brian's character. When you go back and rewatch this now, it feels like a weighty match. It feels like an important match. And it feels like if you wanted to tell the fictional biography of Daniel Bryan's character, this match, more so than the sequel, would deserve its own chapter. Because when Bryan taps out, I can't help but feel that was his mental breaking point that made the turn in the second match inevitable. So I think this one's more important. I think it's a better match, incidentally, as well. It feels like it's got a bit more to it. That may be a bit teleological. It may Maybe me sort of imposing the past on it, but I think that's that's why I would rank it above the first Styles Brian match. But ultimately, neither of those Styles Brian matches I've decided. Again, you know, this could change any given moment. Neither of them are going to be my pick. My pick is going to be Roman Reigns defending the Universal Championship against Finn Balor the night after SummerSlam. And the reason why I'm going to pick this one as my TV match of the year is precisely because the category is TV match of the year. And if you want to talk about TV matches. This match in particular, I think, was responsible for one of, if not the most compelling segment of television of the entire year on either main brand. Um, first of all, Finn, not phased by Roman's steely glare. There's this wonderful little stare down as Reigns makes his entrance to really kick things off. So you've immediately got this kind of tonal setting uh, taking place where you know both of these men if they've turned up to wrestle a high stakes universal championship match which is important to set that tone because this match carried the responsibility of saying okay Brock Lesnar is done this is now we've turned a corner this is the new Monday Night Raw it's refreshed and we are game and we're going to give you the best product we can so that tone was important to set the action as you might imagine between these two as the match unfolds is insanely fluid it's like silk you know that that cliche blink and you'll miss it that they always used to describe or used to use to describe cruiserweight champ cruiserweight matches back in the day I don't know if they still do really um that applies here, and the reason it applies here isn't because the the action is unfolding uh, faster than you can keep up with it. It's because the exchanges are so fluid that if you blink, you're not going to know how it is Reigns got the better of Finn or Finn got the better of Reigns. Uh, and, and I mean, it, the the chemistry is remarkable between these two. Easy to forget that they had one of the best TV matches in 2017, uh, 2016 which was Finn's first Raw main event. Uh, so I guess there's a, you know, there's a nice little bit of, of historical weight to this as well, I suppose. Um, so on top of all of that, you also have this wonderful use of, of the strength and speed dynamic. Um, that serves, you know, it, it helps on a couple of fronts. First of all, it allows Roman Reigns to really appear as compelling. It's a real compelling performance from the newly crowned champion here as the kind of cocksure champion of this barbaric strength. Um, uh, because he's able to exercise some character muscle by being able to show his strength and throw Finn around a little bit and be that kind of cocky Roman Reigns. That I feel, you know, that unapologetic cocky Roman Reigns is Reigns at his best because he gets to show that little bit of intensity and he gets to show that little bit of edge. 
that he otherwise sometimes gets lost in their desperate attempt to make the character click. Um, and it's friendly to a to a, a contemporary audience as well um, that the way they play off the, the size dynamic, I mean, because they do it in a way that makes the match competitive rather than dominant. They may be miss a storytelling trick there. If, if, if this was a Hitman match, they would use it to tell an underdog story. But I guess, again, you know, the importance of this match was to set a competitive tone for Raw and to set a vibrant tone for Raw. So it made sense to go down the competitive route. And that's how they use that size difference uh, so interestingly, is to show that just because Balor is smaller doesn't mean that he's outmatched. Um, They also use it to, to execute some really cool little moments, some really cool spots, I guess is the word we might use. Um... Roman blocking Finn Balor's penalty kick on the apron is a really cool moment. And again, a character-infused one. You get Barbarian Roman Reigns again. Uh, no selling Finn Balor's chop. It's a common moment in Reigns matches, but it's always a, it's always a convincing one. It's like Undertaker, no selling a punch. Um, and Balor's reaction to that, by the way, kudos there. Um, Balor's aggression suddenly exploding when he's stomping away once he's finally gotten Roman Reigns down on the on the canvas really gets the crowd amped up. Uh, and, and Roman countering with a one-arm sit-down powerbomb rattling the ring feels as deep as it is and because of that size difference being emphasized feels all the more important. But again, the reason I picked this, the match is great, but really it's everything surrounding the finale to the match that really tips it and makes me pick it as TV match of the year because it uses its TV format to be able to do something perhaps you wouldn't see on uh, as frequently or as or as re- readily on pay-per-view it it accounts for the context of this particular episode of TV setting that new tone for Monday Night Raw in the aftermath of Brock Lesnar in the part-time a heavy focus uh, and it's just you know shared universe lots of character and I'm talking about Stroman going to cash in money at the bank and the shield coming out reuniting that whole situation and the fact that the match still gets a decisive finish a decisive conclusion in the midst of it, it doesn't just get thrown out that the match actually concludes amidst all of that it's compelling television it's exciting television it's what wrestling TV should be like that's why I've picked this as TV match of the year. I wish I had time to really kind of pick apart the details, the fine details of that that conclusion, because it kind of came in with a bit of divisive reception at the time. I still think it's a it's a remarkable uh, a remarkable sequence at the end of a remarkable match that together make Roman Reigns versus Finn Balor for the Universal Championship on Monday Night Raw the night after SummerSlam. My pick for TV match of the year in 2018. Okay, guys, this seems like a decent spot to have a little advert break. Beyond anything else, I could do with catching my breath. I feel like we're going at a rollicking old pace here. So I'm going to take us to a quick ad break. uh, And when we come back, we'll crack on with arguably the most hotly contested category of the year, network match of the year. I'll see you in a few moments. Stick around. Okay, guys, welcome back to the show. Thanks for sticking with me. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. We've been going for about 40 minutes, but we've got a long way to go yet. We've still got another three, six, nine or so matches to talk about, uh, including some of the absolute corkers that this year has, has, has put forward, barely skimming the surface. So let's talk then about Network Match of the Year. And I want to start off with a match that a lot of people have forgotten even happened. I've not seen it talked about since the night it happened. Um... 
even among UK fans, but to me is still one of the best matches to have happened on the network. And it says something, you know, that I'm picking this above a lot of Aline matches, above all of NXT US's women's matches, above all of NXT UK's matches altogether. You know, there's a lot left on the cutting room floor for this hotly contested category. Uh, And the fact that I think this match is one of the best, that counts for something, folks. So I implore you to go revisit it when I'm done talking about it. And I am talking about the final of the 2018 United Kingdom Championship tourney between uh, Zach Gibson uh, and Travis Banks. Um, And, I mean, it's a great little match, this. It really is phenomenal. It's one that you rediscover when you go back and and watch it. First of all, you've got this incredibly realistic aesthetic to the way that the two of them wrestle with one another. I feel sometimes, particularly in the developmental territories, the kind of peripheral brands, uh, everything can get a little bit theatrical, everything can get a little bit over the top, everything can get a bit indulgency to Masa Champa versus Johnny Gargano, which, by the way, none of their matches feature in on my shortlist for this category because their matches just aren't to my tastes. Don't hate me for it, it's just a personal thing. Um, but this match really is to my tastes. It's subdued, it's restrained, it's cerebral, uh, and like I said, very realistic. If 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 you want, and I'm not talking about kind of 1980s realism. I'm not talking about NWA kind of realism that maybe Austin would, Stone Cold Steve Austin would maybe champion. I'm talking about Bret Hart realism. I'm talking about pure realism. I'm talking about the kind of realism where you go, well, this looks like it's a genuine wrestling match, uh, both in the way that the scientific exchanges happen, but also in the way that the high the high spots happen, the way that the every blow connects. Uh, uh, it's it's um it's you know master craftsmanship in this match. Um, there's subtle uh, uh, an actual fact before we get to the character here. Let's talk about that expert craftsmanship because you know it's not just in the way that it's executed. It's in the way that everything is structured. There's an expert psychology on show here that that sees Gibson um, you know targeting Banks' shoulder, which is a tremendous help, of course, because Gibson has had this this uh, this finisher, the Shankly Gates, that that. I seem to think focuses on the shoulder, if not the arm. Um, and but as he's as he's pursuing that, as he would, as he's as he's focusing on the shoulder, uh, you get a little chess-like movement. You know, there's there's moments where Banks is able to use that that kind of linear blinkered focus to his advantage, and nail moments like when he counters a an Irish whip on the outside into a tremendous slice of heaven, where he where he jumps up onto the ring barrier and nails it on the outside. Moments like that, spurts of babyface comeback that emerge out of Gibson's uh, precision focus. You know, again, expert craftsmanship, not just in execution, but in structure. And there's subtle character, as I was about to say there as well. Um, you know, Gibson kind of trash-talking Banks from the very beginning. And he kind of keeps holding his hand out as the crowd try and trash-talk him as well, like he's physically pushing the crowd away. He's physically pushing their vocal response out of his head. Uh, and he's trying to tell... Tell, getting Banks' head, saying, "Don't you know? Don't listen to them. They're nothing. They don't, they don't count." It's it's a great kind of showy performance from Gibson, while still maintaining that threatening grit that carried him to the final. Uh, and in response, you've got Banks. You know, he's unreadable. He's got this this grim grim visaged expression on his face. And as the match goes on, and he's more and more feeling the pinch of his shoulder and feeling the. Uh, feeling on the back foot, he starts to growl, you know, and he's becoming more animalistic to the point where when he ends, he's practically feral. I mean, it's such a great kind of compelling character performance from Travis Banks. If you were to watch this match not knowing anything about him, I feel like you get a convincing idea of who his character is. Um, And then, you know, it's worth saying that I think even though Gibson wins, to me, Banks is the real star here. I think it's a star-making performance for Travis Banks. Um, You know, he has this 
presence about him. I mean, he's only a small guy, you know, but the way he stands there, you know, like I said, stony expression on his face. It's what served Kevin Owens so well in NXT. He's just got this stage presence with his sort of sneering, stoic, immobile demonstration of ring grizzle is what I've wrote in my notes here. He's just like this piece of gristle that you just can't, you know, you can't pull it apart. You can't figure out the best way to get past it. You can't cut it. You can't slice it. It's just so wiry and tough. Um, And best of all, it's a match that benefits from a brilliant setup. Not just in, you've got the Shankler Gates, you've got the shoulder. But in the fact that it's a tournament final, so it's high stakes. And they've built the Shankly Gates up throughout the tournament, match by match. It's it's won within seconds. The minute he locks on, someone taps out, and that's without an injured shoulder. So you know that it's a dangerous submission. Um, and, you know, Banks fighting through that injured shoulder. I think he fought through Joe Coffey in a, in a match with a massive size difference. So not just the psychology of the match, but the psychology of the setup as well. It's such classical wrestling, and it it all kind of comes together. This match is a testament to what happens when you just pay attention to the basics, and you just master the basics. The basic old-school wrestling tropes still work magnificently well, and here in this match works so magnificently well, they help propel it to being, to my mind, one of the best network matches of the year in a hotly contested field. Secondly, I'm going to talk about Mustafa Ali versus Buddy Murphy and their no disqualifications match from 205 Live. Uh, This means that Ali isn't being awarded Network Match of the Year honours by me, which may be a bit contestable and a bit controversial. And again, it says something about the quality on the network this year that Mustafa Ali didn't wrestle, in my mind, the best Network Match of the Year. Um... You know, I mean, first of all, I almost gave him his own special recognition category. I haven't done in the end, but it's worth saying that if anyone came close to rivaling Rollins for for the need for that, it was Mustafa Ali. I mean, he's wrestled a litany of classics this year of his own. Uh, and, you know, thank God that he's been promoted to SmackDown Live where a wider audience get to experience him. Because if anyone's earned that kind of a quote-unquote promotion, and I almost hesitate to use the word, it's a guy like Mustafa Ali. Um Many will consider this match, this no-DQ match with Buddy Murphy, his pinnacle achievement of the year. I know I certainly do. Um, first of all, uh, it's worth saying Maverick, my good right side of the pond friend, asked me when I announced the shortlist in my column for this category, you know, where was his tournament match with Gallagher? Uh, I've also excluded his tournament matches with uh, Buddy Murphy, his tournament match with Drew Gulak, his matches with Hideo Itami. The reason is... I think this Buddy Murphy, the no DQ match, it's more expansive in terms of its content than those tourney matches without being any less disciplined or effective. So you've just got more of what worked about those tourney matches, which puts it above those. And it preempts the Itami Falls Count Anywhere match, which was the best Itami match, which kind of, as good as that was, felt a little bit like a retread of this one. So it preempts an excellent match later in the year and it builds upon excellent matches earlier in the year and I think that makes it Ali's best match um, one of the things that it maintains that those Tony matches did that it that this no DQ match doesn't decide to throw by the wayside is a realistic finish, this is what's made Ali to me such an amazing breath of fresh air this year, you know in the year when you had Tommaso Ciampa and Johnny Gargano starting last man cha- standing matches with spots with necks and heads in st- sandwiched in steel chairs being thrown into ring steps only to get up at one count 15 minutes in 
here you have Mustafa Ali ending matches with a sudden onset of three big moves. You know, the Gallagher match, for example, uh, a couple of super kicks, uh, a DDT, and a and a and a um, a five forty, a five oh four. I can't, I can never remember the name of his of his finish. Uh, you know, but but ending it with three sudden big moves. You barely see that in wrestling anymore. And the same happens with this Buddy Murphy match as well. You know, he hits one big move, uh, and that's all he needs to to do to be able to pick up pick up the victory. At the worst, it could feel a bit sudden, but that that realism is so old school and so faith restoring that the, the, the true kind of precise art, the, the, the art of chasing realism in wrestling isn't lost. And to see it incidentally in, a, in one of these cruiserweight matches that often go for more is more is, is so brilliant, makes him such a great performer. Um, it's also worth saying that uh, the the content of the match itself, very creative, you know, I mean, I think when you get these kind of stipulation matches, sometimes the matches could feel a little bit married to the stipulation, almost like, you know, the, we've got to do the obligatory kendo stick bit, and we've got to do the obligatory steel chair bit. That doesn't feel this way, and I think one of the reasons why that is, is A, like I said, they're very creative in the way that they use weapons, particularly the steel steps, but, but also, uh, you know, the... Um, the the introduction of them, the the use of them, uh, doesn't feel shoehorned in. Uh, and further, it benefits from the fact that this is you know they've already wrestled two matches. They're very familiar with one another. They don't they don't like one another. So you know that just helps the no DQ feel a little bit l- less like a stipulation for a stipulation's sake, and a little bit more like a, a warranted environment for them to be competing in. Uh, and that's really I think the final takeaway from this match is the the fact they'd wrestled a number of matches before and they have this great chemistry with one another, both as characters and as performers. As characters, you know, two guys who have been chasing to become the face of 205 Live this year, only for Ali to totally transcend that chase at the end of the year. Um, so really, they've both benefited from it. A key case of one guy gets over, one guy goes over. Um, but also, the the, the performers have a, a, a great chemistry as well. You know, you've got Big Man and Little Man going on inside the context of a cruiserweight division because of Buddy Murphy's story of just meeting the... Uh, the weight limit, and they play on that very much, and they play on it very effectively, not just in this match, but all of the matches. So in the end, you know, a great expansive peak achievement in a peak career year for Mustafa Ali, um, but not the best network match of the year. Shockingly, and this <laughs> shocks me more than it does anyone, I've gone for a ricochet match as the best network match of the year, specifically a match that I didn't see at the time, but I I researched when it came to the formative stages of deciding what was going to make my shortlists for these categories, uh, and it was on uh, WWE's network playlist for the best matches of 2018. Often those playlists aren't worth the time it takes to to go through them, but this one really was. Um, I'm talking about the Ricochet versus Pete Dunne match from NXT Champion versus Champion, Title versus Title, the NXT North American Championship, and the NXT United Kingdom Championship, both on the line in a high-stakes match that emerged out of some shared universe interaction as both men had their own run-ins and their own beef uh, with the Undisputed Era in NXT's mid-card. And, I mean, it really blew me away, this match. I'm not sure where to start. Um, I mean, let's start with the fact, like I said, it stems out of this shared universe issue with the United, with the Undisputed Era. Ricochet was having a run-in with them backstage. Pete Dunne asked if there was a problem as he was walking past. Pete, of course, having his own history with uh, Roderick, Str- Roderick Strong, dating back to TakeOver New Orleans. 
Ricochet thanks him for uh, the inter- interference, the it's sort of intervening in what was, I think, a four-on-one situation. Certainly a three-on-one. Uh, and Pete Dunne uh, says, I'm not your mate. You know, I'm not your friend. And from that, which is exactly how Pete Dunne would react to, you know, perfectly in character. And from that point on, the two just didn't get along. Growing tension eventually led to posturing, which eventually led to the two of them agreeing to have this title-for-title match. So it's a little bit, it's not even a feud. What it is, it's just natural reactions between two characters stemming out of a shared universe situation leading to a match. And to me, that's just picture-perfect pro wrestling writing. That's what New Gen Raw did so brilliantly in the 1990s. That's what NXT continues to do so brilliantly. Um, So immediately you've got that character set up, and that then helps imbue the match with this sense of culture shock. The two characters are so well-defined going in, at least the difference between them is so well-defined. And that then contributes to the style of the two. I mean, Triple H once said that styles make matches, and if ever a match has proven that to be true, then this is it. Um, You've got this great sense of culture for culture here. You've got the American verbosity of Ricochet in his high-flying, in his diving, you know, in his well-groomed, you know, he's a good-looking guy, you know, he's flashy, uh, some might say over-the-top. And then compared to him, you've got the kind of the the pot-marked grimace of of Pete Dunne and the wiry, uh, you know, the wiry hair and the kind of the... Uh, the guile, the British guile of Pete Dunne against the American verbosity of Ricochet that is present not just in their characters but in their ring styles and that's really on showing the match. That makes it a real treat to watch. Um, there's high stakes. As I said, it's champion for champion here and it's partic- it feels even higher in stakes now that NXT UK is launched. I'm not sure if this match aired before the launch of NXT UK or not. Um but it makes it all the more fun when you go back and revisit it to think, oh man, you know what? What would have happened if Ricochet had won the the UK Championship here uh, just ahead of of um, NXT UK uh, launching? I guess you could maybe say that it made the the finish a little bit inevitable, the no finish a little bit inevitable, which is kind of galling when you have a match that plays out as well as this one does. But nonetheless, you know, I mean, I'm a big fan of champion versus champion matches anyway. I think they should be done irregularly. They should be very, very. Um, rare occasions we've seen far too many of them over the years but like if you could you imagine if like they were once every few years because then you'd be putting this match up against the likes of Hogan and Savage at WrestleMania 6 Cena and uh, Rollins at SummerSlam 2015 you know that's the kind of match this was I dare say it was worthy of a takeover spot frankly um so high stakes you know Pete Dunne wrestling for the North American title Ricochet wrestled for the UK title Bragging rights, perhaps, but there's a there's a real sense of of cultural and national embarrassment riding on whoever loses here uh, as I said, Styles makes matches his Triple H's mantra, at least it's what he said in the past. Um, and that's really what informs the story of this match. You have simple joint manipulation as a refrain uh, for Dunn stepping on feet, yanking fingers. You know, on both for both offensive and defensive reasons, he does it when he's on the offensive, he does it when he's defending against Ricochet's uh, own offensives. And likewise, Ricochet uh, uses his dives, his athleticism, his flips... Uh, as his refrain uh, at unexpected moments for offensive and defensive reasons. Um, you know, all the while, incidentally, selling the fingers, always going back to selling the fingers. You know, he's shaking his hand, his fingers are sore, they're battered. And again, that culture shock, over-the-top American verbosity, the flips, the dives, against British guy, all just focusing on that minor detail, you know, the hands. 
and and the way that they stick so rigidly to their styles you know is what makes this such a transcendent effort you know it's so refreshing to see that kind of style for style in an age where everyone wants to do everything you know it's so nice to see these two guys not want to do that um and attentive to the it's attentive to the small details in context and character as well um and the commentary does a good job of it, of explaining that uh, for once so pay close attention to what the commentators are saying usually i would say tune them out but they do uh, a better job than i can do in the five minutes i've afforded to talk about the match on this show so go back rewatch it listen to what the commentator commentators are saying about both men because it felt like it was very much on point for them both you know from the counters to the posturing to the explanation of it being champion versus champion it all around the presentation the the build-up to it the execution of the match the characters and the the commentary it's just all brilliant even the finish you know is as disappointing and inevitable as it is to go to a no finish you can't really hold it too much against it you know in a in a year where the the standard on the wwe network exclusive programming has been exceptional this match to my mind is the best of the best of the lot um and that's really you know that's that's a high high watermark to be to be hitting so my net my network match of the year for 2018 18 I can't even talk I'm that excited network match of the year for 2018 is Pete Dunne versus Ricochet champion for champion for title for title from NXT for the North American and United Kingdom championships Okay, we move swiftly on. We're not done yet. We've got another three categories still to go as we near the hour mark here. Uh, And let's talk about Tag Team Match of the Year then. Tag Team Match of the Year is the category that is responsible for my absolute favourite match of all of 2018. So that's going to be what I end this category with, of course, and going to be what takes home the honours. Obviously, Rollins, Ambrose versus Ziggler McIntyre, not counted for this category because that really was in the special recognition category for Rollins. Would have been very easy, first of all, to just pick three undisputed era mustache mountain matches for this. Uh, you know, the the one at the UK tourney, the one at on NXT, the one at Takeover. But ultimately, you know, as big a fan um, as I am of all three of those matches, I think it would be unfair to do that. The first match that I really want to talk about is maybe a bit of a contentious choice to include here because it involves some not very popular people. Uh, but I do feel like that one of the best tag team matches of all year was between Ronda Rousey and Kurt Angle and Triple H and Stephanie McMahon Helmsley at WrestleMania 34. As introductions to characters go, uh, this was a fantastic one. Uh, and it's it's quite difficult to think of an introduction to a character on WWE TV, especially one who's going to be playing a prominent part, that is quite as riotously fun uh, and quite as just guiltily outrageous as this match. I recently went to see the Aquaman film a couple of times. I'm a big fan of the DCU films anyway, more so than most. Um, so I was looking forward to it anyway. It's one of the most batshit insane films I've ever seen. I mean, it's crazy. But what's brilliant about it is they lean into the craziness of it and that makes it work. And I feel the same thing could be said about this tag team match. This is the Aquaman of WWE matches of 2018. There's a bizarre comparison if ever there was one because they lean into the insanity of this match even existing. You know, I mean, when you really pick it apart, you've got one of the best UFC fighters of female fighters of all time against a business executive, you know, a Kurt Angle who could barely move against a Triple H who's semi-retired. I mean, it's a ridiculous match to happen, and they lean into that, and that's what makes it work. The fact they have a fun time with it is what makes it work, and it makes uh, Rousey look great as well. Um, 
Because regardless of the criticism they come into, Triple H and Stephanie once again prove, much like Vince used to prove all the time, why it is they're such effective bad guys. Why it is you love to hate them so much. And sometimes you hate to hate them. But um, because... You know, the way that they structure the match, the despicable way that Steph behaves, the despicable way that Triple H behaves, it's so pantomime, it's so theatrical, but that's what makes it so fun. And, and you love to hate them in this match. You love to hate Stephanie in this match to the point so much where you're, you're willing Ronda on to get that arm bar on uh, that cleverly, incidentally, gets denied several times over. You know, Stephanie isn't made to look like an idiot. Uh, she's made to look like a fool but those two dif- those two are slightly different things i think um so you know it's 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 a match with its fair share its fair share of gamesmanship and its fair share of back and forth but ultimately you know Stefan Tripps play that kind of theatrical Vince McMahon this is a latter day Sean Vince WrestleMania 22 kind of match you know you turn up to see the bad guys get their asses kicked and for the most part they do interestingly enough angle looks the most convincing and comfortable I think we've seen him look in all the matches he's wrestled since he's been back. And I think he benefits from the fact he doesn't have to carry a, a great weight here. Um, he's said a couple of times, actually, that he's kind of injured himself in training for matches, which may be partly, partly why, excuse me, <clears throat> partly why his matches haven't been up to scratch. Frankly, I think it's just because he's kind of passed his prime and he should maybe accept that and come to hang his boots up. But But this is certainly not an ugly performance from him. It's not his best. But you feel comfortable watching him, which is more than can be said a lot about a lot of his other performances. Um, it also means that because he has limited ring time, the focus remains very much on the, the centerpiece of the match, which is Ronda Rousey in an introduction to the main roster. Um, so ultimately, you know, maybe he was a better partner for her than The Rock. Because if The Rock was there, you'd, you'd want to, you know, fans would want to maybe see him wrestle as much as they would want to see Ronda. Whereas with Angle, uh, it maybe allowed the company to to pull back on on that a little bit and, and let Ronda take center stage in a way she may otherwise not have done. Um, and this match really accomplishes something. And you can tell I'm hesitating to say this because it feels like a bit of a verbose thing to say, but I'm going to say it, screw it. This match may very well be genre defining. When you think about it, and this is what I really love about it, nobody's talking about this. When you think about it, this is an intergender tag team match. We've seen hundreds of them. They're never really any good. Uh, And you're almost tempted to say that they can't be any good. Well, this is the match that says, actually, they can be bloody fantastic. Not just because it's crazy and it leans into that and it leads into the ridiculous stipulation and ridiculous setup, but the way they manipulate the intergender rules show that you can actually craft something really compelling. And and watch this match back and then think about what, say, AJ Styles and Charlotte versus Seth Rollins and Sasha Banks could be if they followed a similar vein. Like, suddenly you look at that genre and you look at this match and you go, this is a genre definer that says you could get more out of this genre than you otherwise might. So, you know, it's worth worth paying heed to that. Ultimately, though, it is defined by the moment where Ronda Rousey takes on Triple H in the ring in the sense that it's an entirely guilty pleasure. It strains logic and disbelief, but it does so in a way that kind of embraces the, the nonsense um, and doesn't take itself seriously and doesn't want to convince you that it should be taken seriously. It's a pleasure to watch. It's riotously fun, and for that reason, I think it is one of the best tag team matches of 2018 and deserves recognising as such. Um... It isn't quite up to the same standard as the two best tag matches. The runner-up in this category has to be the Undisputed Era versus Only Lorch, uh, sorry, Only Lorcan and, and uh, Danny Birch uh, at Takeover Chicago for the NXT Tag Team Championships. Um, this is a match that starts off with 
Birch and Lorcan being booed by a hostile Chicago crowd who want to be called and cheer the Undisputed Era. It finish, excuse me, it finishes with this is awesome chance and Birch and Lorcan having won over that crowd. If that isn't the epitome of an underdog story succeeding, uh, then I don't know what is. And that's really what what defines this match. It's a Cinderella story, not just in its in the match itself, but in the build up to it. You know, these two guys, Birch and Lorcan, wrestled each other a bunch of times. They teamed up. They were an unlikely team. Nobody was talking about them. They don't scream out star power. They racked up a couple of big victories. They got embroiled with the champions. They got their title shot, and they took the champions to the absolute limit. This is a tag team equivalent of Bret Hart versus the One Two Three Kid, and I absolutely love it for that. The Undisputed Era are out-wrestled several times, but they're able to ultimately manipulate the environment more expertly, and that's what allows them to take home what is not an easy win for them. Uh, And that story is so compelling. I love the unique mesh of the styles between the four men uh, and the fluidity of of the action, because both of those things create... um, And I'm going to sound a bit pretentious when I say this, but it is me, so I'm sure you guys are used to it... Um, you know, the coolest, oddest ballet you've ever seen is the way that I wrote, wrote, described this in my notes here. Because, you know, Lorcan has a very kind of unique strike-based offense. Birch has a similar kind of offense, but infused with that kind of British world of sports style. Uh, you've got O'Reilly, who is that MMA style, and you've got... Um, Uh, Strong, who is very kind of American indie in his style. And when you start meshing all of those four together, if you were to just watch them move around the ring, it's it's some of the oddest but most interesting and kind of uh, colourful movement that you're going to see in a wrestling match ever, quite frankly. And And it really works very well. I mean, the match watches like no other match that I can think of for that. And that's that's really great. Of course, only Lorcan's performance is is standout here. I think should really be considered star making. He takes some massive spots, some massive bumps, things like the bump to the ring apron on the outside is perhaps ill-advised, uh, but nonetheless helps Lorcan stand out as, as maybe the breakout star of this match. I think he's got, frankly, between this and some of the stuff he's been doing on NXT week to week, he's got one of the best hot tag routines going. I mean, he's one of the best hot tags in the industry. He's like this striking firecracker. It's like lighting a flare. You know, he just comes streaming in. The wonderful moment at the end, it's not a hot tag, but at the end when he's basically taking both O'Reilly and Strong out on his own. I mean, you just believe it. He's wiry. You know, he's not the biggest guy in the world. He's a bit odd-looking. You know, you'd feel maybe unsafe sat behind him on a bus when he's, if he sits talking to himself. Um, but uh, it's about the best way I could think to describe him. Um, but he is such fun to watch. And you could believe that he could kick someone's ass, and he and he very much kicks the UE's ass here. The choreography is fantastic. I've already mentioned the fluid action and, and Lorcan's bump on the outside. Um, but there's 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 you know just the the the, the choreography in individual exchanges is fantastic. Uh, you know, I mean O'Reilly and Strong have mastered nailing axe and smash. It's a thing of beauty. Um, um, but the choreography of the overall match is great. I mean, I love the way that it kind of finishes. They they pay homage to the or homage. I don't, I'm not sure I have to pronounce it uh, to um, the finish to to the big double submission spot in the famous DIY revival two out of three falls match, and that's really what leads them into the finish. Then then they have a toe to toe brawl. The the choreography from the minutiae to the overarching story of the match is all fantastic. So whoever helped them produce this match, I think, really deserves some kind of recognition and pat on the back as well. 
Uh, and also, the I mean, one great moment is the ejection of Adam Cole that contributes massively to making the underdogs feel like they're tangibly capable to win. That feels like a turning point in the match. You know, you're in this hard-fought match and Undisputed Era is suddenly trying to take a shortcut to save it. And, you know, uh, when it looks like Birch and Lorcan are going to win, it looks like they're going to win. And you buy into that. You buy into the notion that they're going to win because it feels believable the way that it's done. And so for Adam Cole to cheat them of that, I mean, it's again, like I said about the UK Tony final, it's a case of the basics still working you've built up this Cinderella story you've allowed them to look like viable competitors you've brought them to the edge of victory then you've denied it them in a cheap way that's going to get the fans riled up I said that this is the tag version of Bret Hart versus the one two three kid that moment when Cole steals the steals the uh, pulls O'Reilly out is basically when Bret gets a pinfall that doesn't count in the one two three, or, or a kid gets a pinfall that doesn't count in the I can't remember which way it is in, in their raw match um, you know, it just escalates things and makes the underdogs feel like they have that much greater chance of victory. So all in all, it's a tremendous achievement from both teams. Tremendous tag team match, and it says a lot that it's not my tag team match of the year. It says a lot that as close as it came, you know, because I was, I was, I was kind of um, championing this match after all of the Mustache Mountain stuff. I was championing this match right up to when I started to go back and research it. But when I researched the matches of the year for this podcast, but when I did go back and research matches of the year for this podcast, in the end, I had to come to one final conclusion, and that was that neither the WrestleMania 34 match nor this Birch and Lorcan tag team match was Tag Team Match of the Year. Tag Team Match of the Year has to go to a match that is my favourite match of all year overall, but I think really stands out as a very special achievement, an all-time kind of an achievement that people should be talking about a lot more. My Tag Team Match of the Year, my favourite match of all of 2018, is the Undisputed Era Challenging Mustache Mountain for the NXT Tag Team Championships. Uh, I think it was it was in July, on the July 11th episode of NXT. I mean, I'm not even sure where to begin with this thing. It's it's a genuinely stunning composition that marries up influences of the Hart Brothers, the Revival, and the Shield all in one. And when you think about, you know, you're talking Bret Hart, Owen Hart, the Revival, and the Shield. Jesus, right? I mean, good Lord. But that's what this match does. I mean, that's why it's so compelling. Um... It's like that Bret Hart Owen Hart versus the Quebecers match at Royal Rumble 1994 if Bret Hart had made the tag. That's what this match is in a lot of ways, I feel, anyway. Um, you've got an ultra-violent start to the match in a four-man brawl, which is an excellent way to kick off. I can't remember the last time we saw that. You know, to, to, to do something slightly different to kick off one of these big stakes tag team matches is fantastic. I mean, there's even an inflection in Montreal in that fact, that the way the match starts out is this uncontrolled uh, fist fight. Uh, and it speaks to the Undisputed Era's hunger to recapture those uh, championships. Uh, it's, it's you know, the, the way that they then get quickly bested by Mustache Mountain in, in the wake of the brawl they start is wonderfully characterful. But generally speaking, that opening and throughout the entire match, we see a completely different side to the Undisputed Era, uh, which has only made me an even bigger believer in them as a group uh, heading into 2019. It's a horror of a match because Yui are nasty, cruel, mean, focused, vicious. Uh, it's a unique change of pace for them tonally that reveals the 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 sinful depths of their avaricious nature and just exactly what they're prepared to do to be able to walk around with those smarmy smiles and those championships on their shoulders. It's quite unnerving a performance from them, actually. Um, 
the way that the brawl then parlays into the match itself with uh, you know Trent Seven uh, having his leg targeted is absolutely seamless. And before you know it, you know, Trent Seven's locked in leg submissions and it feels like you've been there. I mean, when I first watched this match, it's so unique because when I first watched it, I thought it must have been 40 minutes long or something crazy. Um, but not in a bad way. Usually that's a, that's a bad sign. Usually, you know, a short match feels like a long match when it's a bit slow and a bit boring. But it just felt like every second that Seven was trapped in a submission was an eternity. I mean, there were there were elements of uh, Bob Backlund and Bret Hart Survivor Series 94 here, you know, because every second that he spent trapped in that leg submission felt like another 10 minutes. Um, and so the first time it happens, because of the way it transitions out of that brawl, the first time it happens, it feels like he's had his leg worked over for 20 minutes, when in actual fact, it's just coming off of one moment. I mean, that's the kind of brilliant immersion that you get with this thing. Uh, and... That then enables this great performance from Trent Seven, who uh, acts as kind of the wily veteran. You know, his wily vet face in peril act is so engrossing um, and becomes emotively powerful because you're playing off of the emotional relationship that he has with his partner. This isn't just a tag team. It's a fraternal, even a paternal relationship between him and and, uh, and Bate, uh, Tyler Bate. Uh, and that means that, again, every second that Seven is in one of those leg submissions, every second he, he fights his way free, it feels like he's fighting for his life. And Bate does a tremendous job on the ring apron in a way that could threaten to be hammy. But because you're just so engrossed by the emotional heft of this thing, Bate does this incredible job on the ringside. Um, I beg your pardon, I'm getting so excited. On the ring apron, kind of selling the jeopardy of this situation and the urgency of this situation, which, by the way, I mean, the crowd gets a bit distracting at the beginning, um, but there's a the, the urgency in this thing is anxiety-inducing. It's so palpable. Um, the whole match itself is, you know, to say it's quite a composed match, the whole thing is like a spike of adrenaline. Every minute, the urgency of every minute is is unreal. Uh, it marries those influences I was talking about, the emotional connections of the shield, the the, st- the chaotic style of the revival, the the sort of the story uh, the story inflections of the Hart brothers, the shades of Montreal, the shades of Bob Backlund. There, uh, it's a pinnacle achievement for the format. Frankly, this is a special match. It deserves, if you're into it, five stars. Not because it innovates, but because it just achieves a level of emotionally immersive storytelling that is so rare to find these days and is so hardly ever achieved by even the very best on WWE's main roster. It is a literate match. It wears its influences on its sleeve. To my mind, this is one of not just the best matches of 2018, the best tag match of 2018, Frankly, hands down, it is one of the single greatest tag team matches of all time ever wrestled anywhere. It is that damn good. It's so effective. It speaks to the beauty of the simplicity of wrestling. It is wrestling as performance art in its truest sense. It is character. It is an emotional experience. It's a roller coaster. It's exhilarating, exhausting. You care. You're excited. You're entertained. I, as you could tell, I can't spill enough of my goodwill down this microphone to tell you how much I've fallen in love with this match. I think it's just an absolutely, you know, singularly remarkable achievement. So kudos to all four men involved for the story they told that night.
Okay, so NXT, uh, sorry, tag team match of 2018. Mustache Mountain defend the NXT Tag Team Championships against the Undisputed Era on NXT on the 11th of July 2018. Two categories left, folks. The big two categories now. Uh, I hope you're still going strong. I feel like I'm going to have to rest my voice for six days at the end of this thing, but we'll we'll press on because we've got the the big two uh, categories to go here. And <clears throat> excuse me. Let's start off with mid-card match of the year. Now, bear in mind, again, discounted any Seth Rollins match because I considered them separately in the special recognition category. So this one really came down to three matches for me that immediately jumped out. And as we have done with the other categories, I will go through them with you one by one here. Let's start, first of all, with Daniel Bryan versus The Miz at SummerSlam. I'm not going to lie to you folks. Uh, I think that this is a flawed match. But I still think it's one of the best of the year. Um, The reason I say it's a flawed match is just because I felt like there was a bit of an error in the way that they designed it, in the way that they built to it. Um, It seemed to want to build more off of the idea that these two had had this long relationship, which of course they had, dating all the way back to 2010, and that this was the culmination of that. Um, And the video packages and the promos and everything seemed to focus more on the early stuff from like the turn of the decade than they did the stuff that happened in the last two years when Brian was retired. And it was the stuff in the last two years since Brian retired, quote-unquote, that... Uh, that people were amped up about. That was the story that people cared most about. That was the story that people wanted to see climax in the ring, and yet it seemed to become a bit of an afterthought, a bit of a footnote in something that they tried to make more expansive. And I think ultimately that was a little bit of a mistake because I think it allowed the match itself to lose a little of its poignancy in the way that it was executed. Because the... match opens with this, I don't know what to call it, this sort of um, concept, I guess, of I just want to put you in the face. Uh, And, you know, I don't find that particularly enthralling, but that's what they were running with, and fair enough, that's going to be your your refrain to begin with. And to be fair, they did play up to it. You know, uh, it started off with them basically just punching each other in the face. Uh, But the problem was, it didn't really feel much of anything because like you said there were sort of some areas in the build I think they didn't really focus enough on the personal animosity uh, between the two of them Um, even though you could argue that it's personal animosity that feeds the petulance of that opening of wanting to just punch one another in the face they just don't like each other Um, but uh, what I will say is as as kind of mundane as that is it also felt nasty and it felt straightforward and it felt mean-spirited. I mean, the moment when Miz is charging at Brian just catches him by the throat, that's nasty, even by wrestling standards. Sometimes it's those simple little moments that can that can feel the, the ugliest. I think that a little bit of the uh, sort of I'm going to use your moves psychology is a little obvious as well, and again, a little bit too much obsessed with the idea that they've had this years-long rivalry rather than focusing on just allowing the two of them to have this great match with one another, feeding off of, as Brian proves, uh, seeks to prove Miz wrong about what Miz said on Talking Smack and Miz seeks to prove Brian wrong about everything that Brian has said. I said at the time, I have no real reason to cheer Brian, and I think that that stays true as well. It's quite a self-righteous and sanctimonious performance from him. But interestingly, that is now a benefit because 
post the heel turn, if you think of this match in the context of Brian's arc and where it ended in 2018, and think of where it ended as a journey rather than, you know, sports entertainment is dead, folks. Don't think about it as a turn. Think about it as a journey and how he got there. Then this match, again, becomes a key milestone in that. And just seeing Brian's smug performance, you know, it's an early warning sign, folks, about where he would end up. Um, I do enjoy the classical composition and its moral alignment, though. I mean, Brian is uh, afforded to give The Miz uh, his just desserts. You know, this was about basically at its core level, regardless of, you know, the the errors or benefits of the way that it was conceptualized and, and executed on TV. It does benefit massively from the fact that this was kept about, you know, Brian just wants to give Miz what Miz has coming to him and he was afforded the opportunity to do that uh, you know in spite of flurries of uh, advantage from the Miz largely Brian gets to kick Miz about a bit gets to manipulate his joints a bit gets to sort of um, slap him and punch him in the face uh, you know and that works really well um, I'm beginning to wonder whether I made a mistake whether I made a mistake including this on the shortlist frankly because it seems like all my notes are negative. I was also going to say that the pace and the content do feel a little soullessly practiced as can often be the case for for Brian matches especially. Um particularly because there's a moment in the match where they basically just plagiarize what Miz did with Rollins in the Backlash match where Brian ends up kicking the ring post and it kind of translates into a far less effective um you know focus on the leg kind of span. Um but what I love most about the match, and, and to be fair, I think I love it so much that it's it's probably the reason why it's still on the shortlist, is the finish. Because what people didn't pick up on is the finish plays to the opening. Because how does Miz win? He wins by punching Brian in the face. You know, Brian had gone on and on and on and on about, I'm going to punch you in the face, I'm going to punch you in the face, to the point of almost being a bully. So, I don't know. You know, even though it kind of misses the point of the match... Seeing Miz win by just punching Brian in the face and shutting Brian up, I kind of like that. So it's, it's you know, I mean, performance art, you may find a way to make it work for you. I think really the 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 the, the character roles in this were kind of the wrong way around. I feel like Miz was actually the hero in this story. I had no real reason to boo him and no real reason to cheer Brian. So to see Miz win by punching Brian in the face, you know, that I mean, that just felt like poetic justice, quite honestly. So I, I really, I really liked that. Ultimately, though, there's a reason why it is third on the shortlist, and it's because it just doesn't stand up to its two main competitors, uh, both of which feature one performer in particular who I think has kind of ended up getting uh, um, getting a little shafted, quite frankly, by the conversations we all have as fans at the end of the year about who the best wrestler has been this year. Um, you know, Becky Lynch has become the hot property, but people forget that Charlotte was already having incredible, uh, putting on incredible stuff in the first half of the year, and Becky Lynch wasn't even a footnote on the company's priority list, quite frankly. Um, but I think the next match I'll explore in this category is actually Becky Lynch versus Charlotte at Hell in a Cell for the SmackDown Live Women's Championship, one of a number of instances where I felt that women's matches should have closed out pay-per-view. Um there's something about this match that I think evokes the spirit of an Angle versus Benoit match in terms of its um, counter-heavy wrestling, I guess is the way that you could call it. You know, it's it's going tit-for-tat, it's reversing moves, it's technical exchanges. Um, obviously, they're not quite as smooth as Angle and Benoit was, but, you know, who's going to be? Um, and some of the kind of exchanges they go for are a little aspirational in the sense that they don't quite, you know, meet their mark. They're a little kind of rough around the edges. Um, 
And so you could maybe mark it down for that. But just the fact that they're doing that, they're wrestling this incredibly mature performance and showing themselves to be, um, you know, as technically capable and technically proficient in the ring as some of the all-time greats, I really liked. And I really liked the fact as well that 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 seemed to be a focus of this match, which played a very important role in the overall arc of their feud. Um, It also makes the finish feel a lot less sudden and anticlimactic. and instead feel fitting and inevitable. So the finish comes when Charlotte goes to spear Becky Lynch, but she magnificently counters it in one of the most breathtaking uh, kind of uh, pinning combinations that I can remember seeing. And it happens so quick that you sort of blink and you're not sure really what's happened until you see the replays. It's such a magnificent moment. I think in any other kind of a match that wasn't so focused on technical wrestling and working the body parts and that kind of thing it could come off as a little weird but because they set the tone of their match about being proving you know them sort of silently as well proving themselves the better wrestler uh, to see Becky come up with that kind of counter move which you know she got there by watching her tape and doing her research uh, and she knew that that spear was coming at some point she was armed and ready and prepped for it I thought was magnificent so I loved the finish to the match as well I mentioned earlier that it's an important match in the wider arc of the of their feud, um, and and that that's why it was so great to see a technical wrestling match here, um, because you know everything Lynch had been saying up to that point is very fine. I think I said this in in um, my performance art preview of uh, TLC. I think um, everything Lynch had said up to that point had been about proving herself she was the better wrestler of Char- than Charlotte was, and that's why she deserved the spotlight and was bitter that she didn't get it. So to have a technical wrestling match in which Becky gets the best of Charlotte and ultimately wins by countering one of Charlotte's big moves basically verifies everything Becky Lynch had been saying as true. And that's what makes for a compelling antagonist. is someone who has a point, feels a certain sense of moral superiority, and then is able to go out and prove themselves right. All of a sudden, you kind of go, huh, Maybe she's got a point, you know, and that, and then suddenly you're, you're you're muddying the morality of the story, and it just becomes a little bit more. It's easy to get wrong, but I think that they got it absolutely spot on. Um, and the reason they got it spot on was because of them designing this match the way it was designed. It also instantly verifies the threat as a villain to Charlotte as well. She's not just a coward; she's someone who can get it done. I think. They, they, it is absolutely uh, pitch perfect, though. I mean, tonally, it strikes the perfect chord. Excuse me, I'm losing my voice. <clears throat> uh, some may have maybe, and I didn't see anyone asking for this, but some may have wanted a rougher, edgier match, maybe, uh, you know, a bit, bit more of a brawl. Um, but the technical infilim style, um, as I said, you know, it plays to Becky's mission of proving herself the better wrestler. Um, the personal animosity, it's still all there. But it's done through the body language, you know, through the people. I don't think we we put enough emphasis on facial expression and body language sometimes. And and I hear that's where you get the story told about their animosity. It's not in the action; it's in the way they carry themselves. So it's still there. It's 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 not you know it's not immediately obvious. But if you watch it with a close eye, you get that tonal tonal chord struck. Um, and as I said, ultimately. You know, one of the reasons why you have to consider this a strong contender for undercard match of the year is because it shouldn't have been an undercard match. You know, and, and when you get a match that transcends its spot on a, on a roster, you have to start taking account of the fact that it is, um, that it's over succeeded. You know, it's over. It's an overachievement, and they absolutely overachieved. They should have been. I mean, even the the pre-match hype video. Um, I I don't remember it too well, but I do remember the impression it left on me as being like that man. That's a that's a big main event type hype package right there. Um, and so it, I mean, it baffles me 
that they didn't close out the show and WWE uh, continued to deny the women that that spot until TLC uh, when ironically perhaps that feud was at its coolest um but yeah, absolutely, definitely why it's one of the best undercard matches of the year, because it was an overachievement in that sense, should have closed out the show. Remarkable match, but not my favourite undercard match of the year. My favourite undercard match of the year, what I think was the best undercard match of this year, <clears throat> we can still say the same, shouldn't have been an undercard match, should have closed out its show, should have main evented, watches like a main event. This is Charlotte defending the SmackDown Live Women's Championship against Asuka at WrestleMania 34. As I said, I mean, you shouldn't need me to tell you it feels like a main event. Um, you know, you think about the build. Asuka was undefeated for years. Charlotte had the championship. Asuka had won the first ever Women's Royal Rumble match. This was the first time they'd ever wrestled. It was absolutely a main event in design and then in production as well. I mean, Charlotte's entrance on the throne with the three warriors de-crowning de- her, you know, was deliberately indicative of Triple H's WrestleMania 30 entrance when Charlotte was one of the three warrior women that decrowned him. So, you know, I mean, immediately you've got this this incredible setup, this open recognition of, of how far women uh, have come. And so, it you know, I just, it really should have closed that show, man. Um, the match holds up as, as being main event worthy as well, incidentally. I mean, the, the energy to it, um, you know, there's this simmering hostility that looks like the emotion of particularly Charlotte is going to get the better of at any moment because there's just this onset of all of the emotions of battle that she's having to struggle with at the same time staying focused against her fiercest competitor ever. Um, And it feels like that simmering hostility is going to just blow up into an outright fight at any given moment. And you get this real great sense. You know, I always say that you can tell when a wrestler enjoys the work that they're doing. You can tell the performers relished this match. They relished the opportunity to wrestle one another. And the characters were shown to relish this opportunity to to fight one another as well. And that's so in keeping, you know, with their two characters. They're both alpha females, ultimately. And, you know, while Charlotte was dominating the main roster, Asuka was dominating NXT. Um, It's worth not looking past the physical action, either. The exchange, you know, I just compared uh, Lynch and Charlotte Hell in a Cell Tangle Benoit. You, you, you know, you could easily compare this in a similar way, or maybe compare this to Eddie and, and Benoit, because the the exchanges, the technical exchanges, are silken smooth. You know, they they really sometimes in women's matches. I know this might not be popular to say. Some of the exchanges can be a bit aspirational, as I said earlier. They can look a bit rough around the edges. They can't quite land here. Everything lands. I mean, it is a beautiful match to watch in that sense. Uh, the and the counter wrestling supports the character wrestling as well. I hasten to add. Like I said, two alpha females jostling for position. You know, they've come with their game faces on. They have counters for the other's best moves. Uh, and you know, they're they're ultimately it's not just about winning a championship here as much as it is about proving themselves. I am the queen. I am the empress. Uh, you know, and and that reflects in the way that they are able to counter one another's best efforts in the ring. I guess if you were going to criticise it for anything, you could say that the conclusion is is maybe a little sudden, uh, and uh, and and I think this might it might be Maverick on the pond who said this. I feel and and having gone back and rewatched it for this podcast, it does feel like the match would have benefited perfectly from maybe another five minutes and could have really achieved like a next level status had it been given that opportunity. Um, but nonetheless, I don't think that detracts from the achievements. As I said. The context of this match was main event worthy, the presentation of this match was main event worthy, and ultimately the execution of the match was main event worthy. 
the same as Becky Lynch versus uh, Charlotte Hell in a Cell. The difference, of course, being that this is WrestleMania main event worthy. Uh, and ultimately, as much as it pains me to say, if Doc's listening, he's going to have a smile on his face. I guess that does tip tip it in, in Charlotte Asker's favour a little bit. You know, I mean, that does mean a little bit more somehow. So my undercard match of the year has to be one of my, you know, my fi- I think I listed it as my fifth favourite match of the year. I'm talking, of course, about Charlotte defending the SmackDown Live Women's Championship against Asker at WrestleMania 34. Okay, we have one category left. We've made hella good time here, folks. I'm losing my voice, but I'm going to press on through. Half an hour left to go. Probably not going to need that entire time, but we'll see. Main event match of the year, then. So this is the big one. And again, bear in mind, Seth Rollins uh, not counted. Now, I've just become very conscious of the fact that I haven't been explaining the categories as we've gone along. Most of them have been self-explanatory. TV, any singles match to have happened on television. uh, Sorry, any non-tag team match to have happened on television. Network, any non-tag team match to have happened on network exclusive uh, programming. Uh, so not SmackDown Live, Monday Night Raw, like the TV category, but, you know, 205 Live, NXT, that kind of thing. Tag team match uh, of the year, any any tag team or any variant of tag team match uh, on any kind of programming, so six-mans, normal tags, tornado tags, on any kind of programming anywhere, we're eligible for that category. Uh, undercard match of the year, main event match of the year. So main event match of the year, I always judge this as being one of the top two matches used to primarily sell the pay-per-view. So it is open to interpretation. It is open to discussion as to, you know, um, what would qualify or not. I often think that it's fairly obvious what WWE are using to sell the pay-per-view first and foremost, but it is open to interpretation. So undercard match of the year, uh, contenders had to be any of the non-tag team pay-per-view matches that weren't one of the two used to primarily sell the pay-per-view. Got that? Okay. Our main event match of the year, contenders here had to be any of the two non-tag team uh, pay-per-view matches used to primarily sell the pay-per-view. So uh, I got my short list as ever and appreciating that, again, it's open to interpretation. So you may even disagree that some of these are on the list. But uh, to be fair, I think they're all fairly, fairly obvious main event contenders. I'm going to start with a match that I thought was my favorite to win this category, uh, but that ultimately kind of when I came to rewatch it for this show, I actually think it's probably gone down as a little overhyped, to be perfectly honest. And it's quite controversial for me to say that because I'm talking about Becky Lynch defending the SmackDown Live Women's Championship against Charlotte in a last woman standing match at WWE Evolution. Now, before I start, it is a good match, very enjoyable match, big achievement, big moment for the women, and they should be applauded for that. Uh, the feud has uh, the history twice over, in fact, at this point, um, and it has the character development all going in its favour. So it feels like a big match scenario, you know, not just because of its positioning on the card or because of the pay-per-view that it's a part of. Uh, it would feel like a big match scenario, even if this was the kind of thing that we saw on a regular basis, uh, because you've You've taken the time to develop the characters in a really quite compelling rivalry, um, multifaceted rivalry as well. It's not been a, a simple two-dimensional one. Uh, and the, 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 the narrative had been crafted expertly up to this point as well. Both women are presented as uh, equals then, going into it, at the top of their business. There's no favours played to either one of them in the production of the match. And the way the match progresses, you see that as well. 
I mean, you could argue that as the match nears its conclusion, it starts to tip towards giving Charlotte a more favourable presentation than Becky Lynch. Uh, I don't think there's anything to read into that other than the fact that from WWE's writer's perspective, from their production perspective, Charlotte was ultimately meant to be playing the part of the heroine in this match. Obviously, we know that fans feel differently about that, as is their prerogative to do so. Um, but that's probably why Charlotte's performance was given a little bit extra oomph at the end there, um, you know, particularly when she's emerging from the pile of chairs and stuff because, you know, she's the she's taking on the role of the protagonist um, from the company's perspective. But ultimately, you do get a lot of back and forth. You often do in last man standing matches. Um, but it was it was nice to see that. Um, and, and fitting with the feud as well. I mean, there was always just a, a hair's breadth of a difference between these two. So um, good on them there. Um, the problems are that I found some of Becky's body language to be a little bit cringeworthy, a little bit over the top at times. Uh, especially, you know, she like at the beginning, her arms are flailing all over the place when she's moving around, and uh, you know, when she's uh, mocking the strut, it's it's not it's not like <clears throat> effective like when The Rock would do it. It's just kind of a bit cringe-inducing, really. Um, and there's a couple of moments as well that. You know, I get what they were going for. It just felt a little bit silly when I was watching it back. Like the two of them on either sides of the ring throwing chairs into the ring. Like let one of them do it, sure. But both of them stood doing the same thing. Like I don't understand why two wrestlers would be doing that. Um, and also Becky burying Charlotte. I mean, first of all, it makes sense from a logical perspective because she's wanted to prevent Charlotte getting up. It's the fact that she doesn't just stop by piling chairs on her though. She's sort of putting wreckages of table and, and all sorts of stuff on there. At a point where it's not even on top of Becky anymore, it's certainly clearly not contributing to the weight of what's on top of of Charlotte. So uh, again, it, it, there's moments where it just gets a bit daft, a bit silly. I think it's also worth saying that not every bit of weapon use lands with a zing. Um, you know, there's a <clears throat> quite an awkward moment when uh, Charlotte goes to moonsault Becky through a table. The table doesn't break and just tips over. So then Charlotte goes up and tries something else and it does break. Um, there's a moment where a, a ladder almost dangerously tips on top of Charlotte and Becky bizarrely, you know, pushes it away from Charlotte, which she does for safety, obviously, but it kind of jars you out of the fiction a little bit. Um, but having said that, the, the, I mean, kudos because the spot work is brutal. Um, suplexes onto chairs, body slams onto ladders, even the ladder assisted figure eight, which at first seems a bit awkward, but once, um, once Charlotte bridges, it looks horrific. Um, so kudos to them there. Um, what I would say, though, is that, yes, it's un- unpolished and it is scrappy, but in a weird way, it kind of couples with the breaks of genuine emotion to conjure a re- very real sense of physical exhaustion, which allows them the performances to reach another level in the latter stages of the match. Once once they're in the crowd brawling with one another, uh, you feel like you are witnessing something quite special, something quite transcendent. Um, and it's it, it's it weirdly in part, it's, it's helped by the fact that things are a bit scrappy. So, it you know, what prevents me from calling it the main event of the year is that it is a deeply flawed uh, performance. The execution is, frankly, riddled with errors. I know it's not going to be popular to say that, but it is. If you go back and watch it, you'll probably find the same thing. But it is still one of the best main events of the year because, in a weird way, that all contributes to the sense of genuine physical, uh, as I said, physical exhaustion at the end of the match. I mean, the the brawl through the crowd is great. 
Becky's reaction when Charlotte emerges from the wreckage is great. You know, looking all haggard and the hairs askew. And I mean, some of the visuals are fantastic. Uh, it's just like I said, there's it's there's few potholes in there. So if not that, then what is uh, the main event of the year? Well, it's not going to be my second contender either, which is another Charlotte match. This time it's Charlotte versus Ronda Rousey at Survivor Series, which sort of combines the tone of Charlotte's matches with Becky Lynch with the execution of Charlotte's match with Asuka at WrestleMania 34 to create what I think is Charlotte's best match this year. I know there are some people out there who are still a bit cynical towards Ronda Rousey. My Pond co-host Maverick is among those numbers. But... You know, I think credit where it's due, this match, again, scrappy, bit clumsy, but again, contributes to the quality of it. Um, first of all, uh, as I said, there's an interesting symmetry with the Asker match in the sense that this watch is like an emotional pressure cooker. Um, it's got a big force setting. It's Ronda's first experience with Charlotte. It's Charlotte's first experience uh, with Ronda. And someone even mentions that Ronda Rousey had yet to be beaten in singles competition. So there's there's a genuine similarity to the Asker match at WrestleMania. And like the Asker match at WrestleMania, this is another example of a women's match of a magnitude that really should have been closing out the show that it was featured on. Um, it also, I think, plays into the way the match concludes. Again, you know, sports entertainment is dead. We shouldn't focus on the idea that, oh, they're only turned Charlotte Hill because look how it's worked for Becky and yada, yada, yada. We should focus on the fact, you know, on trying to think, why would Charlotte do that? And I think the reason is because Charlotte felt threatened as the alpha female. You know, she'd gone to WrestleMania, beaten Asuka, prevented Asuka's uh, attempt to usurp her. And here she was against Ronda Rousey in a very comparable situation. And she wasn't able, seemingly, to gain an upper hand to be able to pick out a victory. As Graves is saying in commentary, she, maybe she wasn't sure that she could win. And that's why she does what she does. So I think the finish is actually quite a, quite a characterful one and quite a clever one. Um, and character is played into really well as well by the scrappy posturing opening. Um, you know, the two of them kind of jostling to prove themselves the better competitor very early on. Um, you know, it, it doesn't just play into the character either. It plays into the feud, into the stakes. This is a match that is quite literally all about bragging rights and posturing. And it follows that theme. I mean, that's the predominant theme of the match. You know, yes, it's violent. Yes, it's aggressive. Yes, it starts to feel like it's getting increasingly personal. And it's all about ego. It's all about saying, because there's no championship on the line here. You know, and even by this point in the pay-per-view, it was a it was a victory for Monday Night Raw. There was no way SmackDown Live could claw it back in the points. So this is literally just about, like I said, posturing and bragging rights between the two of them, proving themselves the better wrestler. Uh, and I really like that. And and especially the way it then feeds into the finish, it feeds into Charlotte's character development, it feeds back into the Asker match at WrestleMania, and again the arc that Charlotte has been on. And it's joining dots like this, and looking at the similarities and thinking about the reasons behind what's happening that I think makes watching wrestling's performance art so compelling, incidentally. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Love all of that stuff. Um, I think it's worth saying as well, the performances are great. There's a, there's a very palpable, um, very obvious sense of contempt in, uh, in their expressions, in their body language, even in their combat style, which is especially aggressive, even by WWE standards. Um, one one particular moment that I love is when Charlotte kind of throws Ronda face first into the bottom turnbuckle. And the reason I love that moment so much is exactly what I just said. It's so contemptuous. It feels like she's just literally tossing Ronda aside. Like, you don't count. You don't matter to me. What are you? Eat the dirt, bitch. Um, 
you know that that kind of uh, tone uh, in their performances, I think, is what makes it so. Because without that, the the kind of the scrappy wrestling would just be scrappy wrestling. But it's because they then marry that up to these these individual performances of theirs that make it feel as immersive as it ends up feeling. And I do think it's immersive. You know, again, I know people have their their criticisms of Ronda. People even have their criticisms of Charlotte. But I think it's unfair to say that this isn't an excellent match because, you know, ultimately this is a match that prompted Steve Austin to go on his podcast and say pro wrestling's still alive. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's worth acknowledging that. Um, they entwine a traditional leg versus arm psychology in amongst all of the intangibles of their tone and character, uh, and that enables them to have some adaptive ring games. So you see uh, Ronda getting the armbar from the top rope, Charlotte spearing Ronda in half as she begins to, to fire up. I mean, you get two women here who are learning, having to learn on the spot, having to learn fast, having to adapt their usual moves. Um, having their usual routines interrupted. There's a new level of competition, and this match feels like very much a discovery for them both. Um, and finally, you know, the match has genuine consequence. I mean, you can't, I can't impress on you enough how much I think that's important for a main event to have, is this sense that what's happening matters, and it has a fallout, and that it's going to impact what follows. <coughs> Because this was the match that catalyzed Charlotte moving into a more interesting arc for a character, um, but that that arc feels like it has stemmed quite logically, quite naturally from events. And that's, again, I said it earlier, that's what writing good, any good writing is, actually, not just wrestling. You, you, you take a character, the character is fleshed out in three dimensions, you know how they react to any given situation, you put them in a situation, and then their reaction will feel... Like it can only ever be one thing. And that reaction is then what informs the next part of the story. You know, and that's exactly what happens here. Charlotte reacted exactly the way she would react from what we know in terms of her experiences with Asuka in the past and what we've seen from her over the years of her main roster career. She reacted the only way she ever would react when confronted with a Ronda Rousey she couldn't beat. And that then in turn had a domino effect with things happening and moving on SmackDown. That in turn have led us to the situation we are today. If WWE could capture that all the time, then their product would be on fire. It would be brilliant. And it's as simple as that. You let the characters do the writing for you. But as good as Charlotte versus Ronda is, and I did come very close to naming it my main event of the year, it did miss out. And it missed out because at the same time that I was researching this podcast, I've also been researching a column series that I'm going to be dropping through January that I'm so excited to share with you guys. Where I'm going to be... <coughs> Oh man, I'm losing my voice. I'm going to be uh, counting down my top 60 Royal Rumble performances of all time, excluding winners. So no Ric Flair's in 92, you know, no Ben Wands in 2004 uh, or anything like that. No Undertaker's in 2007. Non-winners, but my favourite 60 performances from those who never won a Royal Rumble. And one of the things, one of the first Royal Rumbles I watched back to research that was this year's. The two th- more importantly, the 2018 Men's Royal Rumble which I think was absolutely one of the primary selling points for for the Royal Rumble pay-per-view, so it is qualified for the main event category, and it is my main event match of the year. I know it kind of feels a bit like a cheat to name the Royal Rumble your main event of the year, because it's the Royal Rumble, and it just feels like an easy pick. But I think people genuinely haven't latched on to how brilliant a Royal Rumble match we got from the Men's Royal Rumble this year. Um, I don't even know where to start with it, quite frankly. I mean, first of all... The overriding... I've never seen a Royal Rumble that has had such a universal theme play, not just into the Final Four or the winner's performance, but throughout the entire cast of the Rumble. And this, this theme 
felt very conscious. It felt like a conscious production. It didn't feel like they stumbled into it. It felt like it was very deliberate. And it plays on the zeitgeist of this era's central issue. Uh, not just at the start, but all the way through the hour-long match, which is this generational divide and this increasing desire among fans to want WWE to commit to its contemporary generation. That plays through from the beginning, through you know Finn Balor's performance. It plays through the way the entire Final Six is structured. There's a wonderful moment where Roman just dispatches Cena with a single right hand that kind of intones the same, the same theme. It really is prescient throughout, and that makes it... I dare say in future years it may make feel like a bit of a product of its time, but ultimately this is its time, and in its time I think it stands up amongst the very best Royal Rumbles ever because it has that universal theme and and, and follows it so in such a widespread manner that I don't think any Rumble is, is comparable to that. Um, the last six is structured incredibly. Um, it's, it is a little self-aware, it is a little sort of postmodern in that sense, um, but it uses that match-in-match formula that got established in 2007 with Undertaker and Shawn Michaels in a far more natural fashion that I think we've seen really since 2007. You know, because 2013 has a great demonstration of it, but it all feels a bit choreographed. 2016 has a great demonstration of it, but it all feels a bit choreographed. This one feels naturalistic. And the moments that don't, the moments that do watch as deliberately self-conscious are infectious because it plays on that theme that we all have an opinion on, or most of us have a passionate opinion on about part-timers and, and vets against the contemporary generation that keeps getting shafted. Um, so a, a remarkable final six, you know, and indeed a, a well-chosen final six as well. It's not a bizarre final six. You know, you've got John Cena, Randy Orton, Rey Mysterio, Roman Reigns, Shinsuke Nakamura, and Finn Balor. Big hitters who you could imagine would be there. Uh, and people who don't feel intrusive in the finish. Um, far cry from the preceding year when Orton randomly won it. Um, the the Rumble itself is impeccably judged. Uh in terms of the performances of every single one of the people in it feel totally appropriate. No one overstays their welcome. No no particular refrain gets worn out. You know, the humour with... I mean, the prime example, actually, is this. The humour with Heath Slater not being overplayed. He gets attacked in the aisleway several times over, makes it to the ring maybe within maybe three or four entrances because of Sheamus, Heath Slater eliminates Sheamus and then quickly gets eliminated himself. So it, it has an impact, it has a role to play in the match, but it doesn't overstay its welcome. And, and just other performances, Finn going coast-to-coast, Baron laying people out outside the ring, uh, you know, Cena being kind of a bit cocky uh, and kind of being unapologetic for, towards the fans, you know, Shinsuke being enigmatic enough to, to go on to win it. I mean, across the board, Rollins, you know, has a great performance. Everything's, like I said, impeccably judged. Miz's kind of is limited more to kind of a cameo, but it feels like him again getting just desserts, which is a role he plays almost as well as someone like Vince McMahon used to. Um, so again, you know, individual performances are, are, are just everything about every performance is spot on. It then also maximizes traditional rumble tropes to a, to a degree of effectiveness that, again, I don't think other contemporary rumbles of recent years can match up to. Uh, a few examples, you know, you've got Reigns and Rollins who have that partner-partner relationship in the rumble and one of them betrays the other one. It's done so suddenly so uh, and so impeccably well that it, it shocks. You know, you kind of didn't expect that, especially because it's Reigns betraying Rollins. Which is ironic, because obviously one of the most effective things about Rollins betraying the Shield was he was the last person you expected to do it. You maybe didn't expect Reigns to betray Rollins, but the other way around. 
So on, on that one, that, that front it works. It also works on the fact that the less popular member of the Shield is eliminating the more popular one, so the crowd react to that as well. So that, that carries a great punch. There's a great example of that trope, and Rollins kind of smiles. He's like, yeah, you got me. Um, Finn going end-to-end. Finn's performance, spoiler alert, it does make it into my top 60 because there are a few Rumble performances I can remember as busy as Finn Balor's is in this match. Uh, you talk about, it's not just a case of him going wide to I get embroiled in all the action. He's a part of so many different aspects of this in so many different ways um, that, you know, it's a great, it's one of the best examples of a coast-to-coast performance you've ever seen in a Rumble. Uh, and I know Rumbles better than I know anything else in wrestling, you know, so uh, take my word on that. Uh, even the NXT entrant, as, because there's more than one uh, Adam Coles maybe gets lost a little bit but Andrade Elmas comes off of this incredible match with Johnny Gargano uh, at NXT the night before that everybody loved does like I think it's like 30 minutes in the ring has a great sort of event elimination by throwing uh, Kofi Kingston out in a, in a way that shows his character because he doesn't throw him out the way the side that the New Day are on he throws him out the opposite side he goes toe to toe with guys like Cena uh, you know I think he gets eliminated by Orton I want to say so his his elimination is saved for one of the big players as well and absolutely arguably the best and it might not even be arguable the best example of an NXT performer appearing in a Royal Rumble match to date I think. You combine all of this together, you know, the, the universal themes, the, the structure of the final six, the fact that someone won that people wanted to win as well shouldn't be looked past, you know, that the impeccably judged performances across the entire roster of all 30 participants, the maximization of, of traditional rumble tropes. Not only is it one of the best rumbles ever, it means that it becomes, especially because the rumble is inherently fun anyway, even when it's not very good. When you get a very, very good one, it's a very, very difficult thing to beat. And I don't think that any main event match of the year can really come close to topping it. And so as a result, the 2018 men's... I mean, incidentally, I'm not talking now the Women's Royal Rumble, which was a great Royal Rumble in its own right. And I, I don't, I'm not just saying that to be politically correct. It's a genuinely good version of a Royal Rumble match. But the men's Royal Rumble match this year absolutely knocked it out of the park. I've seen it five times now. I love it more. Each time I see it, it's going to become, I think, one of my firm favourites. We'll see how it ages. But for 2018, which is very much its time, to me, it has to be the 2018 men's Royal Rumble match that is the main event of the year. Phew! Wow! I'm exhausted. I hope you've enjoyed the show, guys. Those are my matches of the year, then. So just to recap very briefly, special recognition category is Seth Rollins. Match of the year versus the... uh, Seth Rollins versus The Miz for the Intercontinental Championship at Backlash. TV match of the year is Roman Reigns versus Finn Balor for the Universal Championship on the Monday Night Raw after SummerSlam. Network match of the year was Pete Dunne versus Ricochet, champion versus champion for the UK and uh, North American Championships on an episode of NXT. Tag Team Match of the Year was Mustache Mountain defending the NXT Tag Team Championships against Undisputed Era on NXT 11th of July 2018. Undercard Match of the Year was Charlotte versus Asuka at WrestleMania 34 for the SmackDown Live Women's Championship. And main event of the year was the 2018 Men's Royal Rumble match. That wraps me up. I hope you've enjoyed this two-hour special as I looked back over the matches of 2018, my favourites and my best. My throat is killing me. I'm exhausted. I'm going to go enjoy the rest of my New Year's Day, which is the day I'm recording this. 
Uh, if you've got any thoughts on any of the matches I've discussed, on any of the matches I've omitted, or maybe you think should have been picked instead, hit me up at, on Twitter at LLP Plan. On Facebook, look up Samuel Plan. Email me, samuel.plan101 at gmail.com. You can drop a comment on the post for this show or any of my columns on lordsofpain.net. You can sign up to the Lords of Pain columns forum as well. And please do, because our end-of-year writers' awards are currently going on in the LLP columns forum, so you can sign up and have your say in that as well and vote for your favourite writers of the year. Um, as well as favourite podcast hosts and all that kind of good stuff. Um, so, no shortage of ways you can hit me up. I'm going to be back next week. What I'm going to do, I'm not quite sure yet. I am tempted to try a live blow-by-blow coverage of the 2018 Men's Royal Rumble match, but we'll see how it goes. I'm not sure if that will pan out or not, and so I'm not guaranteeing that by any means. But I will be back uh, next week. You can catch my columns every Sunday. Do check out this one on this coming Sunday because I'll be kicking off my trio of, or it may even be more than that, of my countdown of my favourite top 60 non-winning Royal Rumble performances of all time. It's been a joy to research. That research continues, and I can't wait to get writing it as well, so do check that out on Sunday. And until then, I expect to be back on Friday with The Right Side of the Pond, where we'll be doing our predictions for 2019, so do come check that show out. Check out all the great shows here on Lords of Pain Radio, whether it's about New Japan, whether it's One Nation, whether it's My Friend, The Implications on when, on Thursdays, I beg your pardon, whether it's Aftershock, Retroshock, you name it, The Right Side of the Pond. Loads of great content here on Lords of Pain Radio that you shouldn't hesitate to check out. And with all that said, I hope you had a wonderful Christmas. I hope you had a wonderful New Year. I hope you had a wonderful 2018. And I hope you have an even more wonderful 2019. We're going to be carrying on the good ship Sports Entertainment is Dead next week. And so until then, all the best. Have a good one, guys.